But as for today, we're going to look at chapter 16. As we said in our first um, lesson that's covering this, it's unique because uh, the first part of the book and the last part of the book um, kind of talk about the same topics. And then you got a couple of sections in the middle that talk about priests and laws and more purity. And then uh, right in the middle, you have Leviticus 16. And that's where we will begin today with talking about the Day of Atonement, the Day of Atonement. If you notice, uh, there's your outline. So in chapter 16 is the Day of Atonement. Then going on from there to chapter 23, we'll talk about some of the other feast days that Israel was supposed to keep. Um, then in chapter 24, we have what, se- what could seem to be just an out-of-place chapter in the flow of Leviticus. Uh, but we'll look at some of those issues that deal with the uh, lampstand and the bread and then um, the stoning of a blasphemer in chapter 24. And chapter 25 is kind of tied to 23, uh, but instead of the holy days, we're talking about the holiness of the land. Uh, and then in chapters 26 and 27, 26 lists blesses, uh, blessings and curses. And then a final chapter on vows uh, and things dedicated to the Lord, uh, such as tithe and land and people dedicated to the Lord. So we're going to round out with some of that today. But our first subject that we want to tackle is the Day of Atonement. So on the back of page one is discussing the Day of Atonement. And this takes place in chapter 16. The Day of Atonement is kind of the crescendo of all of the sacrifices that we've looked at. Uh, We looked at the five different sacrifices early on in the book of Leviticus in the first uh, few chapters. We looked at the the sin offering. We looked at the burnt offerings. We looked at the grain offerings, the peace offerings. And of all the offerings, especially with the sin offerings and the burnt offerings, uh, this is the major offering that takes place in the nation of Israel. Uh, It's the most sacred day on the Jewish calendar. It's the most solemn day on the Jewish calendar. Uh, It provides, the Day of Atonement provides a general remedy for the problem of uncleanness and sin that we have looked at in the book of Leviticus. Because Leviticus is all about a holy God separated from an unholy people and how an unholy people can be fit to approach a holy God who dwells in a holy sanctuary. And anything that is uh, unclean or sinful defiles the sanctuary and defiles the people. Therefore, they are unfit to approach God. And if they do approach God in this unfit way or this unclean way, well, we've already seen what happens with Nadab and Abihu and uh, things don't end well. So God provides this means of a sacrificial system But on top of the regular sacrificial system, you have this one special day called the Day of Atonement. And this chapter is uh, arguably one of the most important that we have in the book of Leviticus. For God to continue to dwell in their midst, an annual purging of all the people's sins and impurities from the sanctuary is required. For from the time when God brought them out of Egypt, brought them to the the, the foot of the mountain, established the tabernacle. It was all about God's presence dwelling among His people. And for God to continue to do this, the people had to be made holy through their sacrifices and through the blood that made an atonement for their sin. 
So this is the sacrifice over all sacrifices. Uh, If you were to miss any sins, if you were to miss any sin offerings or miss any unclean offerings, this offering takes takes care of all of that for the whole nation for the year. Then the next year on the Day of Atonement, the high priest had to go in and do the same thing again. And on the next year, on the Day of Atonement, the high priest had to go in and do the same thing again. So next week, we'll look at the comparison and contrast um, between these Old Testament sacrifices and then what the New Testament has to say about Christ's sacrifice. But the Day of Atonement falls on the 10th day of the 7th month, uh, which is about September, late September, early October in, in our time frame. Um, its main purpose was to cleanse the people and to cleanse the tabernacle from the pollution caused by sin and uncleanness. So the two things that the Day of Atonement takes care of is the sin of the people and the defilement or the pollution of the tabernacle, God's people and God's dwelling. In the Day of Atonement, uh, the blood atones for the sin and uncleanness so that God can continue to dwell in their midst. If these things are not cleansed by the sacrificial blood being smeared or sprinkled on them, it becomes impossible for God to dwell there and for the people to approach God in worship. Uh, Ultimately, this would lead to the Israelites uh, dying by defiling the tabernacle, such as Nadab and Abihu did. The ceremonies of the Day of Atonement were designed to avoid the calamity being repeated. Uh, So there are three elements or three parts of this Day of Atonement. We have them listed here. The first one is the special sin offerings made by the high priest, first for himself and then for the people. The priest had to be clean first. He had to be atoned for first. So Aaron, in this case, had to be, uh, offering had to be made for his sin. The usual sin offerings are described in uh, Leviticus 4. They involve the smearing of blood on the main altar in the tabernacle courtyard or the altar of incense in the holy place. But on the day of atonement, The blood was taken right into the Holy of Holies, the most inner part of the tabernacle where the Ark of the Covenant was kept, and the blood was sprinkled in there. This cleansed it of pollution. However, this was a very dangerous operation. The tabernacle was God's earthly palace, and the Holy of Holies was the throne room of God. So it was extremely risky for a sinful high priest to enter there. He therefore had to don special clothes and entered wreath and incense smoke so that he did not die. So it was important for the high priest to cleanse himself first. Uh, this would take place by previous days separating himself, giving himself to the Lord. It would take place by him washing himself and putting on the special linen garments uh, and entering in uh, with incense and blood. Um, That's uh, knowing you're going into the most holiest place where God's presence is, and any any hint of defilement could cost you your life. Um, I'm glad that was not on my job description, uh, but it was on Aaron's job description. Uh, And it was a very serious uh, matter, and this is why it was so sacred. That's why the people were supposed to separate themselves and just absolutely take this seriously. So the sin of, of Aaron had to be atoned for first, that he would go into the most holy place where God's presence is. But in that holy place, on that Ark of the Covenant, there was a seat, there was a, a covering called a mercy seat. 
And even right in the midst of God's holiness and man's sinfulness, there was a seat of mercy. And the blood had to reach the mercy seat. And when God would see the blood on the mercy seat, He would have mercy on His people, forgive their sins, and cleanse them of all of their uncleanness and sin for the year, thus making an atonement. So the mercy seat was there. Uh, The second major element involved a scapegoat ceremony. Uh, the, The priest was supposed to take two goats. One would be sacrificed. The other would be sent away from the camp with the sins of the people symbolically placed upon him. One goat was used as the people's sin offering, as described above. The other goat was sent away into the wilderness, carrying the sins and impurities of the nation, carrying them away from the people. This was done by the high priest laying his hands on the goat, the head of the goat, and confessing all the sins of the people, thereby symbolically transferring the nation's sins onto the goat. So you have two goats. One was for the Lord, and one is for the interesting term that is used here is Azazel. Azazel, and there's been much speculation on one goat for the Lord, for Yahweh, and one goat for Azazel. The goat for Yahweh would be sacrificed. The goat for Azazel would be sent off into the wilderness, away from the camp with the people sins on them. Um, the word Azazel, there's been a lot of um, speculation over what that word or what that name means. Uh, some people think that, that was actually like um, a, a demonic god or, 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 or another pagan god's name that they would take it off and send it on. But Zazel in Hebrew simply means scapegoat. Um, so I wouldn't read a lot into all these fanciful theories. Uh, one was for the Lord and one was a scapegoat carrying the sins off from the nation. Um, So the symbolism of the scapegoat is the high priest would approach the goat, put his hands on his head, transfer all of the sins of the whole nation, all of the uncleanness of the whole nation on him. One animal is sacrificed. The other animal is sent off out of the camp into the wilderness, carrying the sins of the people never to come back again. The symbolism of the scapegoat illustrated that through the sin offering, sin had been removed from the camp. Atonement had been made, and God had forgiven His people for their wickedness and rebellion. So first, the sins of Aaron and the people through the offerings. Secondly, the two goats, one for the Lord, one for Azazel. One died as as a substitute. One was sent off out of the camp, showing, showing them that their sin had been removed. Sin had been removed. The third element of the Day of Atonement was fasting by all the people. Um, This was regarded, again, as an ultra-strict Sabbath. It was a solemn day. It was a very serious event. Um, uh, So it was a Sabbath day where no work was done, but it was also a fast day where no food or water was drunk for 24 hours, and the people totally gave themselves to the Lord. Uh, Before entering the sanctuary, as we mentioned, Aaron put on a special set of linen garments rather than the more beautiful robe and tunic that he normally wore. Um... Aaron's job was to make atonement for the sin of the nation, but he could not do this until he made atonement for himself and his household. According to verse 16, Aaron's actions also made atonement for the most holy place itself. So it was for the cleansing of the people and the cleansing of the tabernacle. 
Um, after the scapegoat ritual, Aaron put on his, pre, his regular priestly garments and presented the burnt offerings for himself and the people. And this way, Aaron expressed the renewed devotion of the Israelites as those cleansed from their sins. So you have the, the sin offering for himself and the people. You have the scapegoats. You have the people fasting. And then you would have other offerings symbolizing their renewed dedication to the Lord, which would not be good enough because they would continue to fail in their dedication, as all humans do, and you would have to go through this process again. So of all the offerings, of all the sin offerings, this was the main sin offering for the whole nation every year called the Day of Atonement. But there were other festivals as well. There were other feasts as well. So if you leave chapter 16 and you go to chapter 23, this lists the national festivals. So in chapter 23, we have uh, some holy days and some feasts. There were three major feasts that is given here and evolved all throughout the history of Israel. On these three feasts, even those who did not live in Israel, even up to, until the time of Jesus, had to come back to Jerusalem in order to offer sacrifices and worship God at the temple. And this was the Feast of Passover, the Feast of Pentecost, and the Feast of Tabernacles. So in chapter 23, we have several feasts, we have those three feasts and other holy days that are listed here. Uh, so this chapter, chapter 23, deals with the Feast of Israel. Uh, the feast days were occasions when Israel kept divine appointments as they assembled together before the Lord. After another reminder of the weekly Sabbath, three festivals are mentioned in two holy days, the Feast of Trumpets and the Day of Atonement, together with the Feast of Booths that make three celebrations in the seventh month, making the seventh month of the year holy, just as the seventh day of the week, uh, the Sabbath is holy. So usually when you see sevens, those are holy days and holy times. Uh, the religious calendar was closely aligned with the agricultural year. So when we're reading about all these feasts, they are tied to what's going on in the harvest, what's going on in the crops, what's going on in the fields, in the land. Uh, the feast of Passover and unleavened bread came at the time of the barley harvest in the spring. And the feast of weeks was celebrated during the wheat harvest in June. The seventh month contained three festivals, the Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, and the Feast of Tabernacles, coincided with the ripening of grapes, figs, and olives. In October and November, the rains began, the fall rains began, and a new agricultural year got underway. By celebrating the festivals of these harvest times, the Israelites gave thanks to God for His provision of food and were protected from the influence of pagan harvest festivals with their immorality and idolatry. So, in other words, these feasts are to always recognize that everything you have in the land of promise is provided to you by God who gave you this land of promise, who delivered you, who got you out of Egypt, who gave you the law, who's made a way to atone for your sins and has brought you into a land to bless you. And it's all for the fact that, that Israel was to be wholly dedicated to Yahweh. Again, the purpose of their um, holiness and the holiness codes was that they would be a separate people. 
dedicated to Yahweh, away from the pagan nations. These festivals were to keep their eye that Yahweh is supplying what we need, not the other gods that, are, that would surround them in the promised land, uh, so that everything they give from, from their, their, their ties to their vows to their land to the people who are dedicated to God, everything would be centered that your whole being, your whole life, your whole land, your whole nation is dedicated to Yahweh. And so these festivals were a reminder that their provision came from Yahweh. It didn't come from Baal. It didn't come from fertility gods. It didn't come from you know, other moon gods or sun gods. All of them came from Yahweh. And so they were to dedicate themselves to Yahweh and thank God uh, for all that he had given them. So here are the different uh, feasts that are listed here in the chapter 23. First of all, it begins with the recalling of the Sabbath. Of course, the Sabbath, the seventh day of the week, is the weekly observance of the seventh day as a day of rest. That would be continual for the nation of Israel. The seventh day is set apart as holy. It's set apart for you to rest. Then you have the Passover and unleavened bread. In verses 4 through 8, the Passover and unleavened bread, which are tied together. Uh, these would take place on the 14th and 15th day of the first month, and they were a remembrance of Israel's deliverance from Egypt and how the Lord delivered them. Of course, the Passover, where you know they killed the lamb, they placed the blood on the doorpost and over the door, and the death angel, they were spared from death in their house. And then how they made unleavened bread, as we've looked at, uh, with bread without leaven because they didn't have time for the yeast to, to rise and fill the dough because when God was going to deliver them, they had to go quickly. So they did not have time uh, to bake bread with leaven in them. So the Feast of Unleavened Bread became a remembrance of how quickly God delivered them out of the land of Egypt. And they were to be continual feast kept as a reminder of God's delivering power. Uh, very closely tied to them was the Feast of the First Fruits in verses 9 through 14 of Leviticus 23. Uh, the 16th day of the first month, a recognition of the Lord's provision in the land by bringing a sheaf of the first fruits of the harvest to the priest as an offering, as well as a burnt offering and a drink offering. So to show that God had uh, that God had blessed them in giving them crops and fruit of their land. They were to bring um, the first fruits of that as a wave offering before the Lord as recognition of God's provision. Then 50 days after Passover, the next is what we call the Feast of Weeks or the Feast of Pentecost. That takes place 50 days after Passover. Uh, this is to show joy and thankfulness. For the blessings of the harvest, uh, the Israelites shall bring a grain offering as well as burnt offerings and drink offerings. Um, the law was given 50 days after God brought them out of the land of Egypt, so that would have happened on a Pentecost. Of course, the Holy Spirit uh, was poured out in the New Testament in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. Uh, but Pentecost originally is a recognition of the Lord's provision in the land by bringing a first fruits offering, I mean, um, by thankfulness and the blessings of the harvest. 
Uh, then you have the Feast of Trumpets, the first day of the seventh month, marks the start of the civil year and marks the beginning of 10 days of consecration and repentance before God. So the Feast of Trumpets leads up to the Day of Atonement. Leads up to the Day of Atonement. Then you have the Day of Atonement, the 10th day of the seventh month. That's what we just talked about. And then the final feast uh, is the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles. So whereas the Day of Atonement is the most solemn day, it's the most holy day, it's the most day of praying and fasting and mourning for your sins, um, the Feast of Tabernacles is a party. It really, it, it's a week-long party and celebration. Um, it takes place on the 15th day um, of the seventh month, a week of celebration for the harvest by offering sacrifices. Israel shall dwell in booths uh, as a reminder of dwelling in booths from Egypt to Canaan. So they would all go out and live in tents. They would bring offerings. They would wave palm branches. Uh, on the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles, the eighth day was just a grand celebration. Um, and that was the time that you know, they had come through uh, the Day of Atonement. Their sins had been forgiven. Uh, they're remembering how God brought them out from Egypt through the wilderness into the promised land and how they dwelled in booths, and it was just a time of celebration. So each of these festivals, each of these feasts had significant meaning, both agriculturally and historically, as they look back and remember what God had done for them, as well as um, what He does for them in atoning for their sins as well. So that takes up chapter 23 of Leviticus, talking about these feast days. And chapter 24 is, again, like I said in our introduction, it's, it's a chapter that doesn't seem to really fit. You know, we're kind of going down the course of feast days and holy days and Sabbaths. In chapter 25, we talk about Sabbath years and the year of Jubilee, but we have chapter 24 right in the midst of those two. Uh, the first part of chapter 24 deals with the lamps, the lampstand. Um, chapter 24, verse 2, uh, God says, Command the people of Israel to bring you pure oil from the beaten olives for the lamp, that a light may be kept burning regularly. Uh, and then you have instructions beginning in verse 5 for the bread. You shall take fine flour and bake 12 loaves from it. Uh, Two-tenths of an ephah uh, shall be in each loaf. And it just it talks about the bread, so we have... Instructions for the lampstand, we have instructions about the bread in the tabernacle. Then in verse 10 of chapter 24, tells a story. And I'll read the story, it's a very short story. But in chapter 10 of Leviticus 24, it says, Now an Israelite woman's son, whose father was an Egyptian, went out among the people of Israel. And the Israelite woman's son and a man of Israel fought in the camp. And the Israelite's woman's son blasphemed the name, the name of Yahweh, and cursed. Then they brought him to Moses. Um, his mother's name was Shelomith, the daughter of Debri from the tribe of Dan. And they put him in custody till the will of the Lord should be clear to him. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Bring out of the camp the one who cursed, and let all who hear him lay their hands. And this is interesting uh, symbolism here as well. Remember in chapter 16, they brought the scapegoat out, and what did they do? They laid their hands on the head of the scapegoat, 
confess the sins and sent him away. Here with this man that blasphemed the name of Yahweh, they bring him out of the camp and all that heard him laid their hands on his head and then let all the congregation stone him. So he paid for his own sin by those who heard him, the eyewitnesses, laid their hands on his head, showing him guilty of his sin, and let all the congregation stone him and speak to the people of Israel, saying, Whoever curses his God shall bear his sin. Whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death, and all the congregation shall stone him. The sojourner, as well as the native, when he blasphemes the name, he shall be put to death. So we have this very short story here of this Israelite son. His father was an Egyptian, but he curses the name of God. He blasphemes the name of Yahweh, and he is put to death. Immediately following that scripture in verse number 17, we have um, what is seen as the death penalty. Whoever takes a human life shall surely be put to death. Whoever takes an animal's life shall make it good, life for life. If anyone injures his neighbor, as he has done, it shall be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Whatever injury he has given a person shall be given to him, um, and so forth and so on. So here we have the, the life for life, eye for eye law that is given here. Um, and given for two reasons. Number one, to make sure that the punishment fit the crime. So if you take a life, then your life is required. Um, If you steal or stole or injure somebody, then you would be injured as well. So it was to make sure the punishment fit the crime. This was the way of justice that God gave here to Israel. And it was also to make sure, first of all, that the punishment fit the crime. And it was also to make sure that the punishment fit the crime that the punishment wasn't in excess of the crime. So if you fractured my arm, I couldn't go and kill your whole family uh, because that would be injustice. That, that, that would not be an equal punishment for a crime. So it's to make sure that the punishment does fit the crime, but that the punishment only fits the crime. An eye for an eye. Um, so it's divine justice that God gives here to Israel. So chapter 24, we got, we got a little bit of, you know, a few things in there. We've got the lampstand, we've got the bread, we've got the story of the, the blasphemer being stoned, and then the law of a life for a life and an eye for an eye. Uh, jumping into chapter 25 of Leviticus, we talk about holy years. So we've talked about holy days, we've talked about holy Sabbath, but now we talk about holy years. And this was in, uh, in context of what we would call jubilee. jubilee. In 25, 1 through 55, holy years, after dealing with holy days and holy weeks in chapter 23, a discussion of holy years logically follows. Exodus 23, 10, and 11 prescribes that every seventh year... The ground shall rest, shall I follow, and anything that grows will be left for the poor and the wild animals to eat. So again, every seventh year the land was to rest. Just as in every seventh day the people were to rest from their works, every seventh year the land was to rest from its works. 
again, just showing this principle of sevenths, showing the principle of rest, and it was also to show principles of provision. This was a way that that Israel was to care for its poor, for its um, for the the sojourners in the land, for uh, the aliens from other lands that were dwelling there, and it was to be given to the poor the animals to eat. So a portion of that is when you you know you plowed your field, you left the corners for the poor. And then the seventh year, you would let the, lot, let the ground rest, and anything that grows be left for the poor. Uh, Leviticus 25 develops these principles in a far-reaching way. After reaffirming the principle of letting the land rest every seventh year, it institutes what is called a jubilee, or a super sabbatical year, every 50 years. Every seven Sabbaths of years, once every 49 years, there was to be a year of jubilee that brought liberty throughout the land. This was a year of restoration. This was a year of what it's called, jubilee. Uh, Hebrews, in this year, Hebrew slaves were to be released. Those who had sold themselves into slavery because... They, they were poor, they didn't have any land, they didn't have anything, so they sold themselves into slavery, and they were in debt. They were released, and all land reverted to its original owners. If a man had fallen upon hard times, he could lease his land to another to raise money, but in the 50th year it returned to the family whose inheritance it was. This was a way to prevent individuals from being poor perpetually, and it also involved recognition that the land really belonged to God, not to the Israelites. He would give it to them in accord with his promise to Abraham, and the people were not supposed to hoard land or take advantage of each other. These arrangements were designed to prevent any family being forced into permanent destitution and the uh, accumulation of land and property in the hands of a few rich people. In this way, the nation as a whole celebrated the fact that they once that they had once all been slaves in Egypt, but the Lord had released them. So it was a way to, in essence, remember where you came from. And it was a way that, you know, as human systems create systems of poverty and systems of slavery, this was a way that God kind of reset everything. Uh, and this 50th year of Jubilee um, was something amazing. So you see the, the, the day of rest, the Sabbath day. You see the Sabbath year when the land rested. And then you see this jubilee year once every 50 years. Now, one of the reasons that um, Israel was sent into captivity in Babylon was because they failed to let the land rest in its seventh year. So they would end up breaking these laws, and God would end up sending them into captivity for 70 years, and by no choice of their own letting the land rest and the land make up for its Sabbath. So, um, you know, while, again, this sounded good, this was something that the Israelites rebelled in God against, especially that Sabbath year uh, where God had to reclaim his Sabbath year. So 
Uh, Israel fails to live up to their end of the bargain. So you can see how God sets all these rules up to be just. He sets all these rules up to govern them. He sets it up for the good of the people. But they still fail God. Uh, which comes to chapter 26. Chapter 26 is blessings and curses. All When we talked about ancient laws, all ancient laws and ancient covenants uh, had their stipulations, and they had their blessings if you kept the stipulations, and they had their curses if you broke the stipulations. Uh, the same it is with the law of Moses. Ancient legal texts such as treaties and law codes usually ended with a series of blessings and curses. That is, promises of prosperity if the laws or treaties were observed and warnings of punishment if they were disregarded. Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28 are clearly in this mold. This is the punishments and the curses and the blessings for obeying or disobeying. From reading the blessings, we can see what Israel most longed for in the future. Good crops, victory when attacked, and the presence of God among them. The curses show what they most feared. Disease, drought, famine, defeat, and exile. Indeed, their exile will give the land the sabbatical rest, that the disobedience of the people denied it, what we just talked about. In this way, chapter 26 links back to chapter 25 with this advocacy of the sabbatical and jubilee years. So going through Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28 is the listings of blessings and curses. And it's very simple. You do what God says, your land will be blessed, your children will be blessed, everything will be blessed. If you don't do what God says, your land will be cursed, your children will be cursed, and everything will be cursed. God will stop the rain from falling upon your crops. He will cause your children to rebel and go after other gods. The blessings and the curses were serious matters here in Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy chapter 28. You see the curses, disease, drought, famine, you know, defeat, exile, um, and all of these things. And I'll probably talk more about this next week because I'm going to take a just a scattered list of stuff and try to go down and answer some of these questions, but should I? I? (laughs) Again, proper interpretation, I'll go into more detail next week and give you examples of stuff, is important. Because what well-meaning Christians do, well-meaning preachers, well-meaning Christians, is a lot of times in our desire for our for ourselves and our churches and our nation. We want to serve God. We want to obey God. We want God's blessings. Sometimes in our sincere desire, we still think the way to God's blessings is by obedience. And if we obey, God's going to bless us. And then if we don't, then the curses that are here in Leviticus and Deuteronomy are going to come upon us. And I've heard that ad nauseum this past year, you know, with the pandemic. You know, I've seen well-meaning preachers, guys that love God, and I don't hold any fault other than they need to sit in my class. Um, I'll edit that part out. Um, 
you know, take these scriptures from the old covenant that God promised Israel about their promised land because nobody today in the new covenant has a land promise and a land covenant with God like Israel did. We have to understand that. They had a special covenant that was based upon their obedience and their land. And so, you know, I've seen guys go back into Leviticus and Deuteronomy and say, well, this pandemic is because God said he'll send plagues among you if you're not doing this, 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 and this. And so this is God sending a plague among us here in America or here on the world. And God's just angry because everybody's, you know, disobedient and all of that. And I'm just like, I don't know. I mean, we have justification for taking those scriptures in a specific time and context. Do we want people to obey? Yes, we do. Uh, you know, do we want to be prosperous? Yes, we do. Is going back to the old covenant and putting what we're essentially doing is putting ourselves back under the law. And putting yourselves back under the law is invoking the blessings and the curses of the law. And um, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. I want you to see that. Christ gave us the blessing of Abraham. He redeemed us from the curse of the law so that I don't know if it's a good idea to go back and say, These, this time is the same as this time because America is not Israel. We don't have a land covenant on our land, even though people have tried to draw parallels. I think that's stretching things um, a little bit in our interpretation of Scripture. I do think there are things that we can learn from here, um, but this is the exact same thing that the exact same covenant God had with Israel apply to us today. Don't believe so. So again, in our well-meaning, we need to be careful that we're looking at the Scriptures in a proper way, we're interpreting them in a proper way so that we don't misinterpret and misapply, you know, these Old Testament scriptures as well um, to us today, ignoring the work of Christ on the cross for us and what Jesus did. Again, first of all, Gentiles were never under the law. No other nation was under the law, just Israel. And Christ redeemed from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. So he took our disease, he took our drought, he took our famine, he took our defeat, he took our exile, he took our death, and he, took, he became a curse for us. Um, so that's my soapbox for today. There's always one, ain't there? There's always one soapbox. And again, I could be wrong. I'm, I'm open to that. I'm open to relooking at things. But the way I have come in the past 20 years to view Scripture is the distinction between Israel and the Old Covenant, not making the mistake of bringing Israel's covenant that they had for a specific land, for a specific time, specific blessings and curses, and needlessly putting them on us. I think there's other ways to get to repentance. I think there's other ways to get to obedience. I think there's others way, other ways to get to faith and get people that way um, other than taking these Old Testament curses and saying, look how mad God is. Um, for if Jesus truly reconciled the world to himself in the death of the cross, and it said he reconciled all things in earth, 
in the heavens, under the earth. He reconciled all things by Christ. If he reconciled all things by Christ, you know, I just don't know where God sending old covenant curses is um, how that evens out. Maybe somebody can teach me that, but that's where I'm at right now. So I will move on from that subject. Maybe I think too much. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe I do. Um, just some things to think about. And I'll, I'll probably talk more next week and give some examples of, of some things. But blessings and curses. Um, the important thing, this, you know, these curses and blessings here link back to what we've already seen, but letting the land rest and, and the Sabbath days. And if you keep the law, you'll be blessed. If you break the law, you'll be cursed and carried off into, into exile. And um, these were Israel's blessings and curses. All right, chapter 27. Sorry about that. Chapter, chapter 27. Um, but to me, that's good news. To me, it's good news. Sure. Oh, sure. Uh, to me, it's good news that every time I disobey, God's not wanting to curse my family, curse my kids, curse my job, curse everything. Um, to me, that's, that's good news. Maybe people don't like good news. I like good news anyway. Um, I'm thankful because um, I've given him plenty of opportunities to curse everything I've had in my life. And um, I'm thankful that he's a God that every good and perfect gift comes down from him. And to me, that doesn't cause me to want to go out and sin more or disobey more. That humbles me to see how good God's been to want to serve him even more because of, of his goodness, without fear, without threats of divine curses on myself and my kids and, you know, everything. And um, I, I like good news. Um, and I think the new covenant is full of good news. And I think it frees us from the bad news uh, that we had under, or that is presented under the first covenant. So anyway, all right, finish up chapter 27. Uh, chapter 27, uh, 1 through 34. These are laws concerning vows uh, and ending with the things that were dedicated as a tenth to God. Um, in Israel, vows took the form of promising oneself, promising your children, promising your house, or promising your land to God or your animals to God and sacrifice. So you would make a vow to God. You would either make a vow to God because you want future blessings. Well, God, I'll give this to you. I'll give my child to you. I'll give my land to you um, in order that you will bless me. Or, you know, God, if you bless me, then I'll give myself, I'll give my land. It's kind of those promises that we talked about uh, on Sunday morning. We make these religious vows and promises that if God will do something for us, we'll do something for him. Or, God, I'm going to do something for you, so I'm hoping you're going to do something for me. Um, sometimes those vows were made um, out of fear. You know, there might be... You know, there might be sickness or something in, in your family. So you're like, well, God, I'll, I'll give my land to you if you take this sickness away or you've made a rash or a quick vow. And then it comes a time that you want to take it back. Well, you can't just take a vow back, but you could buy it back. And um, buying it back would mean you dedicated something. Usually you dedicate it to the priest. 
Uh, so if you dedicate yourself to the priesthood, that means you would voluntarily go and serve the priesthood or work in the fields that were dedicated. You couldn't serve as a priest. Um, or you gave a field to the priesthood, and let's say you wanted to buy or, or you dedicated your child to the work of the ministry uh, or to the priesthood, uh, but then you wanted to buy them back. Well, everybody had a price. You know, I used to watch wrestling in the 90s, and there was a guy called a Million Dollar Man, and his theme was everybody has a price. Uh, well, in chapter 27 of Leviticus, everybody has a price. Um, so if you were a male between this age, if you were a female between this age or a child, you had a price that you could buy back what you had vowed to the Lord. And in buying it back, that would go back to the priesthood to support the work of the tabernacle and things of that nature. Uh, so if you gave land, you wanted it back, you had to pay you know, X amount of you know, penalty uh, over, you add to the value of it, and you could buy it back. And then this is a chapter that tells you what you can buy back, what you can't buy back, what the value is, what you had to pay to buy things back. Um, so it kind of ends in, in this way. Um, and that, that chapter basically says all of that that I just said there. But, um, you know, so it's all about the vows you make uh, and how what you dedicate to the Lord that you can't get back and uh, things of that nature. And then Leviticus ends in verse 34. These are the commandments that the Lord commanded Moses for the people of Israel on Mount Sinai. 